When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word story time, uh, the version of our cricket podcast where we look through the history of the Michael Clark trademarked great game of cricket, uh, Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. And Adam, I understand that in London you are uh, enduring the passionate embrace of Storm Eunice Khan. Are we ever? Hello. Yeah, it is wild outside. There were projections of 90 mile an hour wind last night, so I couldn't help myself by putting up the, the Storm Eunice YouTube from Robolinda uh, with all of his 90 mile an hour Yorkers, mostly back from 1992 when he was here in England. But uh, yeah, right. of course, it's the other Eunice. It's the Eunice starting with an E is the formal name of the Storm. But uh, look, that's the way my brain's wired. If you say Storm Eunice, I'm thinking about Eunice Khan tearing up Australia in, in 2014 and Eunice Khan comes up today a couple of times, by the way. Or I'm thinking about Wakar Yunus, who also comes up, come to think of it. So a bit of a, uh, a preview on what we're going to be talking about in the next hour and a half or so. And uh, yeah, story time number 80. We've been doing this for not every week, but most weeks for about well, nearly two years now, Jeff. It's, um, it's become a big part of our lives. It, it has. And uh, the Storytime community is growing as well. I, I had a message a couple of days ago from a listener, a friend of the show, Glenn Finkeld. Uh, they were having their, their annual lunch down at the Hampton Cricket Club and they were going to have Simon Helmet coming to speak. And because of the, the, the shuffle down from the Langer exit means that uh, one of the Victorian coaches has gone off to work with Australia. So Simon Helmet's been roped into work with Victoria and they needed a speaker. So I headed down to the Hampton Cricket Club today to be their guest speaker for their luncheon. They stocked the bar with Brick Lane, so sent me home with a few as well. So I've, I've had a very pleasant day chatting to everybody about the history of Hampton Cricket Club. I've got a massive book as well of the full history of the club that I'm sure you'll rip into when you get back to Australia, Adam. That's great. Wonderful club, Hampton, uh, in the VT. So, oh, that, that, what a lovely thing to be able to do. Uh, Simon Helmet, 22 years ago, uh, was uh, the assistant coach of the Dowling Shield team that I played in for Hawthorne Waverley way back when. Uh, so I, I remember him when he was, I suppose he was still a ones player <laughs> uh, and probably quite a young coach, come to think of it. But yeah, he's gone on to do lots of things around the world in the Australian setup. He was the bowling coach for Bangladesh the last time I came across him five years ago. So... I'm not surprised to hear that he's getting another opportunity now there's this reshuffle happening in Australian cricket and it provides a chance for you. I hope they gave you a few bucks along the way. Uh, a few bits of correspondence we've got to look at. Michael Holden um, has written to us about our project to get a, uh, a test match up for the 150th anniversary of the first test. Uh, that'll be in 2027. He says, I reckon it could be done, but one of two things will have to happen. One is the AFL starts a little later than usual, or two, they don't play round one at the MCG. In 2027, the test could be played Wednesday the 10th to Sunday the 14th, and the AFL could start on the following Wednesday on the 17th. This may not go down well with all of our audience, but he says England being England, it's likely to be over in three days anyway. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think this is actually 
a worthwhile point here, right? So we know that the AFL season uh, will dictate the cricket calendar. It always does. The real question is how quickly can they turn the MCG around from being a, a test venue to being a football ground? I'm not sure what the answer is, but I don't think it's very long. My recollection is that the Cricket World Cup in 2015 finished in like the last week of March. Last 20, it might have been 29th, around the t- I think. 29th of March show and it would have been the AFL season mustn't have started until a week later or they they would have found an accommodation but I reckon that's doable Uh, I don't think I remember on that night actually Jeff being at the MCG at about you know 12.30 1 o'clock as I was leaving Mm. and them taking out the drop in from the MCG in order to replace it with the football grass which is just a a softer version of, of the turf there at the G so yeah I don't think that's necessarily prohibitive as he points out there the schedule this year for the AFL starts on Wednesday the 16th so at least we need to start talking about that and socializing the idea and it might mean the AFL grand finals push back one week but to have a a set piece showcase event like that where it would attract so much attention. Yeah, I mean, it can't be played anywhere but the MCG. Well, it has to be to be an anniversary of the match of the MCG. Yeah. But, yeah, I remember the, those massive trucks with the big cranes coming in. It was about, you know, it was a few hours after the game had finished. They'd done the confetti, and the only two things still happening at the ground were the truck taking out the centre wicket, and Brad Haddon was still trying to work out how to pour a beer into the spherical <laughs> World Cup trophy, how to drink out of a, a sphere. It's a challenging geometric puzzle. Yeah, yeah. yeah the other thing here is that in 2016, just thinking it through when you were talking, they, they had the the Commonwealth Games uh, in Melbourne, uh, which ran so deep into the season, they had to play the first six rounds away from the G. So again, it's not without precedent. If they if there's a will, there's a way. I suppose is what I'm what I'm trying to say here. So maybe Jeff, we should um we should write something about this mm. uh, and and try and get it on the agenda. Um, I'm not sure whether it'll go very far, but the next time that one of us is writing for the Guardian or something like that, we should um have a dart at this and start getting in the ears of administrators. I don't know. It's worth it. And moving on to something we talked about on on Storytime 79 last weekend, which was very well received, by the way. Thank you to everybody who dropped us a line saying they enjoyed it. I'm not sure whether there were more listeners than usual, but yeah, we did uh, have a fairly decent frolic when we recorded uh, last Friday. Thelma McKenzie. Now, Jeff, in summary, this was Joel Emmonson's 106 number, Mm -hmm. and he has been in touch to just establish the fact that it was Thelma who he was talking about. And during the week, you've been going back and forth a little bit, trying to, trying to find the truth. Is, yes, whether she's, whether she's still around, and, and we still don't know for sure. We, we, we've got historians researching this. Um, yeah, Joel says, I didn't realise she was a wicketkeeper who didn't keep. If she is alive, she would be the oldest test cricketer in the world. And even if she passed away in 2015, she would hold the record for the oldest living Australian cricketer, as no man has made it past 95, unless there is another women's cricketer that we're not yet aware of. Um, he also found the story of Thelma while reading Fiona Boland's book, Clearing the Boundaries. We had Fee on the podcast talking about that book a year and a bit ago, maybe, from memory. Yep. Um, so, yeah, Joel's been digging into that to find out about uh, some of the less celebrated names in the game. Fantastic speak. Speaking of uh, not particularly well celebrated names in the in the game in terms of playing it, John O'Halen, who has been our, our Jody Hicks correspondent, um, he 
each week jumps on the Discord channel and and uh, routinely tells us how Jody's gone that week. Kindly, uh, round eleven, Jody didn't play. Jono reports, but still won comfortably. But on a more positive note, he adds some final word. Eleven players have been on fire. These were players that that were uh, uh, turning out under your captaincy, Jeff, in Sydney a couple of weeks ago. In his last two matches, Nick AMC has won both games, including three for 18 off nine, then one for 19 off eight with the ball. His only batting effort saw him walk out at seven for 126, chasing 144, resulting in him hitting the winning runs with a gutsy six not out. As for Glenn Finkeld, he's had similar form, winning both games, scoring 20 and 24. However, he's yet to bowl. Hope he didn't hurt his shoulder when bowling at the death at Birchgrove for the final word. Uh, thank you, uh, Jono, for being so diligent and going through your teammates' uh, my cricket pages. We, we should make this a bit of a thing, I reckon, that if you're in the final word listenership and, and are playing, uh, keep us across what you're doing, whether it's on Discord or or on or on Twitter. Let us know how your season's tracking and, and we'll try and uh, keep an eye on that and mention it from time to time uh, on these Storytime episodes. All right, let's get into Storytime, the meat of the show via a little game that we like to call... Nerd Pledge Nerd Pledge Yes, it's the game of nerds The game of pledges The game we play with the people on our patron page Here's what happens They fund the show by sending us contributions But those contributions are not a normal denomination of currency They're a very specific number of all kinds of currencies Because that specific number relates to cricket in some way We don't know how And our job is to figure it out Uh, First cab off the rank Is Angus Dixon Who has come in with a pledge in Danish krona This, I, I don't think it's our first Danish krona, but maybe it's our second. We've had a few Swedish krona, but this is the first time we've gone to the Danes. Righto, Angus Dixon, he has sent us a clue, uh, so that much we do know about his pledge. Right, it reads, it's lengthy, bear with me. A bit left field, but it relates to a key element of the game, which is richer for this threshold being passed by skillful operators. Whilst the number is a little bit rubbery, it will change with time and conditions. This was the best I could nail it down in the literature, assuming about 25 overs have passed. I have a feeling that one of you might have an awareness of the concept of this number based on a throwaway line of a brackets previous pledges last name close brackets number if you don't in fact have a scooby what i'm on about here's a clue Anyway, the reason I chose this number is in the hope of perhaps some analysis and discussion of a fascinating area of the game, which could be of interest to many listeners. Please ignore the currency and decimal point needs to move four to the right. That was just to put the number between allowable and affordable. (laughs) Okay, Jeff, there's quite a lot there. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how you've deciphered it. Right. Okay. So by the clues, uh, something that's done by skillful operators after the 25th over, it has to be reverse swing. Right. This is mm. this is the first thing I've drawn from this, um, and in terms yep. of there being a number with a name attached, reverse swing is defined by something called the Reynolds number, which is the formula used to predict flow patterns in fluids moving over a solid object. Right, and this includes the way that air moves over a cricket ball. So this was I had to get into some horrible mathematics uh, for this answer but luckily my partner Jess is a doctor of uh, biochemical engineering and was able to help decode some of the formulas so the formula uses the Greek pronumerals Uh, it goes rho, epsilon, delta divided by mu which 
equates to the density of fluid times the velocity of the fluid times the dimensions of the contextual environment divided by the viscosity of the fluid, bearing in mind that air is a fluid because, you know, it, it moves in the same way. So what this does, what the Reynolds number does, is predict the point at which laminar flow gives way to turbulent flow. So this is how reverse swing works, right? That when a cricket ball's new and both sides are shiny, the air moves over the ball in a smooth way, in a laminar sheet on both sides, and the angle of the seam makes the ball swing. When the ball gets roughed up on one side but smooth on the other, the turbulent air in the little pockets caused by the divots on the rough side eventually creates a surface that laminar air moves over the top of and so it starts to swing the other way it starts to swing uh, with the rough side rather than moving away from the shiny side it moves uh, away from the rough side so this is the difference between laminar and turbulent flow so the greater the speed that the ball is traveling at eventually the fluid passing over the object stops being smooth and starts being turbulent it becomes more violent but in smaller numbers of swirls so that's how reverse swing starts to happen as the passing air gets less purchase on the ball so the studies that I was looking at, uh, they put the Reynolds number for the point at which this shifts, at which reverse swing starts to come into effect, at 2 times 10 to the power of 5. So I'm not sure where the 1690 comes in because everything that I could find involved 5s and 10s and 5s rather than 16s. But the number, it does come in at around 145 kilometres an hour, which is 90 miles an hour. So that the 90 of the 1690 could be that. I'm not sure. Now, the point in the clue where he said, if you don't have a Scooby-Doo, if you don't have a clue, he actually said, if you don't have a Scobie, and that's not a mistake because James Scobie is the first name on a research paper in 2019 that observed the phenomenon of turbulent flow <laughs> on the rough side of a ball, creating a laminar layer for the first time. Uh, I think the whole point of this was to make us talk about reverse swing. So I'm not quite sure where the 1690 comes in, but I'm sure that this, Angus, is what you're talking about. But what he really wants us to talk about is reverse swing. And let's say, you know, frankly, we should have more ball tampering. There should be some form of legalised ball tampering just to, just to rough the ball up a bit more because we all want to see reverse swing, don't we? It makes the game more interesting. We all like watching it. Let's just put, put all of our prejudice to one side and say, why don't we have a more exciting version of cricket? Well, f first of all, uh, thanks to Jess. Love to Jess for uh, helping you sort that out. That's, uh, that's very good of her. Uh, I can imagine the contempt she would have held you in for what you're actually trying to resolve there. <laughs> I'm trying to work out something about reverse swing. What do you want about? Um, and your explanation was, was suitably eloquent, so I feel more informed. I, I, I mean, I think the most interesting thing about reverse swing, and it kind of goes to what you're saying there, it only works at a certain velocity. So if you're a trundler, you're not going to get the ball to go, and that explanation then starts to explain why because of the the way the air interacts with the rough side there's a tipping point right and you only reach the tipping point if you're quick mm. enough so on that basis that's why it's such a what was such a big part of test cricket i'm not sure what the what the middle ground is here i mean for the longest time it was about roughing the ball up by throwing it into the turf and that still seemingly is what the umpire's mostly looking for. But I've never thought that was a problem. I've always thought that tossing the ball into the turf on the way through, I mean, yes, it does add to one side being roughed up, but if you're skillful enough to almost um, UFO the ball back in to the keeper and let it hit that side at the risk of hitting the other side, isn't that something you should be permitted to do? When it comes to 
foreign implements and so on. I think that's a different conversation. But using the the existing conditions to help you be able to get the ball to go, I, I think is is worth re- reconsidering now we're four years beyond sandpaper and we can have a more mature conversation around what the game's lost in, in the four years that have, that have elapsed since this all came to a head then. And, and I always come back to that piece that Vish wrote um, in, I suppose it was 15, 16 or thereabouts, uh, about just how much reverse swing comes from England. There's this kind of racial stereotype around uh, it being um, about it being something that Pakistanis would do, principally. Uh, but per vicious piece, this is this is something that's a big deal, or was a big deal, in the England domestic game, and I'm sure it was in the Australian domestic game too, based on conversations we've had with cricketers. But that all kind of came to a grinding halt uh, around the time of sandpaper. So, yes, uh, as Angus says, it's uh, I think it's. Um, uh, time for us to start talking about it again and, and understanding it a little bit more. Yeah, I think w- whatever it is, um, there needs to be a way to move forward a bit because it is something that adds a lot to our game and, and it is something that, you know, when people remember the great bowling spells, so many of them are reverse swing spells and, you know, perhaps the uh, the lack of scrutiny in earlier eras helped that along, but it didn't hurt the game in doing so. Uh, so that's your number, Angus. Let's move on to number number two. It is in from Ananth Nagarajan. It is $4.50 in AUD. And he says, this relates to a match-defining, rivalry fueled performance of two players from the same game in the 90s, one of the two at his home ground. And uh, I would love to hear you speak of this game in more detail on your show. He then later told us it involved an iconic clash in the one-day World Cup of 96. Yeah, so uh, thanks enough for uh, adding uh, that second bit, which helped me get to where I I needed to be. So where I started and what I first thought of uh, was the 1996 World Cup game between India and Australia, which was played in Mumbai. And I'm thinking Sachin Tendulkar, Mumbai, the Wankhede Stadium or or the Wankhede Work, Rest and Play um, Stadium there. And it holds 45,000 people, or it did hold 45,000 people in 1996 and I thought like are we looking at something obscure like that like 45,000 people saw Tendulkar up against Mark Waugh who made the century but then I kind of realised that you know, in 1996, Australia and India wasn't a rivalry, not meaningfully. This is what we discovered um, in our... Well, not discovered, we knew it, but we, we sort of elaborated on it in the Greatest Season That Was series that we made, Final Frontier. Uh, gee, it's a while ago now. We probably made it 18 months ago or something like that that Australia barely played India. 996 is where the rivalry kind of starts, 96 through 98. And, and then um, it has that, that wonderful, uh, well, it has that wonderful period between 2001 and let's say 2004 when Australia finally cleared the final frontier and, and all the rest of it. So, yeah, so I, I'm going to exclude that even though it was my first thought. In that game, uh, we know that Damien Fleming takes five wickets, wins the game late, Tendulkar makes 90-odd, Mark Wall makes 120-odd, and they were the two top scorers in the competition. But I nixed that. So we're going to move away from that. I should say, by the way, there was a lot of greater season that was chat on the Discord channel this week. I love you all. Thank you for that. Um, we were going to do a series about the 1988 Australia-Pakistan test matches but and, and the one day is actually where Jamie Siddons played his one game for Australia. But we realised we didn't have the bandwidth to do it between the three of us right now. So uh, maybe next time. But yeah, on to Pakistan though. That, I think, is the iconic clash of the 96 World Cup, certainly as far as India are concerned, because, of course, they seldom play. So when they play, you know, usually they, they are up against each other in the group stage of a World Cup these days. In fact, Jeff, I think every World Cup, be it 20 over or 50 over, they ensure that Pakistan will play India because of the, the TV money. But it wasn't 
always that way. In 96, they weren't drawn in the same pool. And it's, I suppose, by pure chance that they faced off in, in the quarterfinal. And that was at the Chinnaswamy on the 9th of March, 1996. India bat first and make 287 for eight with Nabjot Sidhu top scoring with 93. But he's not from uh, Bangalore where the Chinnaswamy Stadium is. He's from he's from the Punjab region. So it's not, not to do with him. And then I thought, aha, 45 for RJ Jadeja. But no, he's not uh, from Bangalore either. He's from Gujarat. Not, so it's not his home ground there at the Chinnaswamy. So I kept looking, kept looking, kept looking. Anil Kumle. Now, he is from Bangalore. Uh, he made a quick 10 off six balls uh, with the bat to complete the innings. And, and we'll come back to what he did later on. But, I mean, of course, Kumlay against Pakistan, that's who he took his 10 for against. I'm thinking there's a rivalry there, right? It seems to, seems to tick a few boxes from the get-go. But then on to Amir Sohail. Now, he was opening the batting for the, the defending champs, Pakistan, and he gets them off to an absolute flyer. We say it, Amwa. Uh, they're none for 84 from 10 overs, which in 1996 money, Jeff, I mean, it's like, it, it's huge. It's a massive start. And then they get to 109 for one when uh, when Anwar's the first man to fall. But in the next over, um, this is where it all comes off the rails. So Venkatesh Prasad's bowling, and so Hale clouts him out through extra cover for four, and then quite pointedly gets his bat and starts shoving it towards the rope and saying, that's where I'm going to hit you again. That's where I'm going to hit you again, or, or words to that effect. And next ball, Prasad takes his off stump out of the ground. It, it was depicted as Amir Sohail effectively losing the plot. And, and Waka Yunus spoke about this in, in great depth a couple of years ago on a podcast that I, that I dredged up where he said that, you know, the whole game turned on that moment where Prasad knocks over a very angry Amir Sohail. From there... Back to Anil Kumle, he turns the screws. He takes three for 48, including Sally Malik, leg before wicket for 38. Then his opposing number, uh, Mushtaq Ahmed, caught and bowled, and then he gets the final wicket. Uh, to win the game for India, they get there comfortably by about 40-odd runs. Now, this, of course, was Anil Kumle's breakout year for India. He, he had a, an excellent series against England in 1993-94, in bowling in the glasses. Jeff, I'm not sure if you've seen um, <laughs> Anil Kumle mark one, but bowling in, um, I suppose, their, their library glasses and, and knocking over England time and again in, in that series. But 96 is where he, where he explodes, taking 90 wickets across Test and one day international cricket. And he was the leading wicket taker in the 96 World Cup, 15 at 18.7. Of course, India would go on to forfeit uh, the semi-final against Sri Lanka when they, uh, when some of the fans decided to start trying to burn the stadium down when they were eight wickets down, which was a dreadful way for that to end. But they always had that win over Pakistan. But then I'm like, well, there's nothing here about 45, so I, I don't really know how that's going to work uh, to be in keeping uh, with the pledge of 4.50 from Anath. Then I scrolled through the scorecard and saw there's one other 45 on the page there. It's Venkatesh Prasad. He took three for 45, of course, the crucial wicket of Amir Sohail. And, and what do you know? He's from Bangalore. So I'm not sure whether the rivalry between Prasad and Sohail stretched much beyond 1996, but the rivalry between the teams certainly did. Uh, so that's my best guess that the quarterfinal of the 96 World Cup at Bangalore uh, with Venkatesh Prasad taking three for 45. A great match uh, with plenty of spice in it at, at a fantastic ground, the Chinnaswamy. I think it's a good guess uh, and I think and, uh, the great thing about this is if that's not right you can jump on the Discord uh, on the Nerd Pledge channel or send us a message and uh, and let us know. Give us a clue. Move us closer to the truth. We'll come back to it on a, a revisit section on a future show. We've got a double header up next. It comes in from six again, 
in Aussie dollars and Rich Turner in British pounds. It is 4.07. Yes, right. So, Jeff, you're going to deal with Rich's first in GBP. There's a clue here. You've almost certainly covered my nerd pledge in a previous show, but if not, it relates to happier times for England's pursuit of the urn. 4.07. 4.07. Well, it has to be England on day one at Edgebaston, surely. I mean, 407 is one of those numbers that, you know, <laughs> before you even look it up, you know, you, you know the story. Glenn McGrath rolls his ankle. Ricky Ponting decides to bowl first anyway. Marcus Triscothic makes 90 off 102 balls. The opening stand with Strauss is 112 in 25 overs. I remember watching that at the time and just the relentlessness with which Triscothic particularly went through the covers just pinged those. I can still see the boundary you know, the Toblerones, the uh, the colour of them. They were, they were that sort of blue and white segmented um, with some sponsor's name on them. They stay in my memory. Uh, Michael Vaughan and Ian Bell didn't make too many, but then Peterson and Flintoff come out and just kept it going. Uh, Peterson nearly a runner ball, Flintoff more than a runner ball. They make 71 and 68 respectively. And uh, by the end of the day, England have got 407 from their uh, 90 overs and have absolutely dominated the match so far and that's the that's the real turning point day the one they always talk about where they said we decided to go after it don't be afraid and and just see where we get to and well they got somewhere special there was this lovely day during the first lockdown i shouldn't really say that like oh this is lovely day during the pandemic when lots of people were dying but there was you know like cricket filled the void even though it wasn't being played, didn't it? And part of that was Test Match Special playing um, some great matches over the years as live. And the one that they started with was the was this Test Match, the Edgbest in 2005. So for five days, or I suppose it was um, four days in one session, people were just tuning in and listening to it. And it's a brilliant broadcast. I mean, obviously, uh, Jonathan Agnew's leading the show there. Henry Blofeld, Jim Maxwell, uh, Jeff Lawson and Mike Selvey, I think, are two of the summarisers, and maybe Vic Marks was the third. But, yeah, I listened to a lot of this day being replayed as Flintoff teed off towards the end and there with Peterson. It was also, was, am I right in saying, Jeff, it was Warren's 600th just before lunch, that opening partnership you referred to of 112 was broken by Warren just before the first break. It was Triscothic. Uh, it was and Strauss. I reckon that's... It was when he bowled Strauss. Oh, it was Strauss, was it? With the huge turn. For 600. Wasn't it with the, um, you know, the one that shreds back from about three metres outside? Oh, no, no, that, that, that's the second it? innings. So I reckon, I reckon you're right. It's the same test match, but I reckon the Strauss shredder is is deeper into the match. But just my gut feel is that Warren had that 600th wicket out the way straight away, and it was, and I reckon it was Triscothic. I might be wrong. That's just sort of the my recollection from the time. But but nonetheless, you know, Warren still took wickets. Flintoff having bowled so well on the first day at Lords, now making runs, getting himself in the Test match. Of course, he, he ends up being such a threat throughout. And Peterson uh, um, backing up what he did uh, in the first innings at Lords. Uh, so yeah, all, all the preconditions there for a great series, and so it was. Yeah, you're right. The 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 huge turner was the second innings, but the first innings was similar in that it was one that turned back in from outside the off stump. Not as far, but Strauss was trying to play right. play a cut shot and played over the top of it and uh, lost his poles right. that time. So he was out clean bowled by Warren twice in the match. So six again, uh, there's no clue for this one, Adam. So you've got free reign for 407. Yeah, and I'm going to end up in a very similar spot to my, my previous answer, but I'll, I'll get there via noting that 407 has never been made in first-class cricket by by a batsman. Graham Hick is the closest to the pin there. He made 405, of course, for, for Worcester down in Taunton in 
was 1989, wasn't it, before he was eligible to play for England, maybe 1990. Anyway, around that time, Ben Hilfenhaus, the, the big German disco, uh, was cap 407 for Australia. The big ship, Warwick Armstrong, uh, bowled 407 maidens for Australia in test cricket. I, I thought about telling you the story of David Smith, who was cap 407 for England. He played five tests between 1961 and 62 in Pakistan and India, but he wasn't quite dusty enough for me. I reckon that even though he meets the criteria of only playing a few test matches and us not knowing enough about him, uh, I thought I'd leave the Gloucestershire and England seamer be uh, for the time being. The 407th test match wasn't much to, to write home about with uh, England beating South Africa by an innings uh, at Trent Bridge in, in 1955. But where I ended up, I was quite pleased with. Now, Jeff. I'm going to be asking questions through this answer because I'm not sure this will be uh, particularly remarkable, but I've got a feeling it is. The score 407 has been made up, you know, maybe a dozen times in, in test cricket across the 145 years or whatever we're up to now. But two of those were in the same test match by the same team. And that was India against Pakistan again. Uh, and this is in huh. 2005. I think, I, from memory, I think that's the highest duplicate score that any team has made. There, there are you know, a number of instances of a team making the same score in both innings, but I think that's the highest twin score. Well, this was, this was the question I was going to put, whether anyone would know, because I didn't know how to look this up, but um, someone must have written about it and you've plucked it out before. So that, that was my assumption, that no one's done... Uh, 407, more than 407, because in a way, how could they? It, it requires almost everything to go right in terms of how quick the test match is going. And, you know, why would you make 407 the second time unless in the second innings of the match, the opposing teams made a truckload of runs? And, and so it was in this particular test match at Eden Gardens. So the first test of the series in 05 between India and Pakistan was a draw. Uh, and this second test is an absolute cracker. So India make 407 to start. Dravid makes a century. Saywag makes 82. Sachin makes 52. So all of the big guns are firing with the exception of Lakshman, who, who makes a golden duck, the only one to miss out of, of the Fab Four. And the two Pakistan leg spinners, of course, are playing two leg spinners. Uh, Danish Canaria and Shahid Afridi take three wickets each. But Pakistan fight back and they only carry a, a third run deficit into the second innings because they are all out for 393 and they make it quickly too. So Yunus Khan, 147. Storm I told Eunice. you we mentioned him. Storm Yunus. And, and then Muhammad Yusuf, uh, 104 of his own. Anil Kumle takes three wickets in keeping with that, that trend of uh, three Pakistani bowlers take three for, and then Kumble uh, takes three for. Uh, the game keeps moving quickly, though. So by stumps on day three, India already in their second innings are up to 133 for three. So they've got time to force a result from there. And then they put the foot down uh, on day four, and at 407 for eight, uh, they pull the plug, they declare. So 407 in the first innings and 407 for eight in the second, uh, setting uh, Pakistan four. 422 to win. In terms of who made runs for India, it was Rahul Dravid again, twin tons, 135 his score. And Dinesh Kartik, who's been a, was more a TV star than a cricketer these days, but I saw he was picked up in the IPL again last week. He made 93. And there were three more threefers. So I don't know if this is going to mean much to anyone, but that means of the 18 wickets that were taken, or rather the 18 wickets that Pakistan took in the Test match, 15 of them were in multiples of three. And then plus the annual Kumlay three for I mentioned before. I'm not sure if that means anything, but, you know, Pat Rogers might be able to work out. He's the kind of guy who might be able to find out from the scorecards whether there have been that many instances of, say, one 
you know, one analysis which have contributed so many wickets in, in one test match. I think Andrew Sampson would find that for you in about four seconds. He'd probably roll over in his <laughs> sleep and, and mumble the answer. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. It might be one for Samo and his extraordinary database. Anyway, so Pakistan has set 422 to win, which of course would be the record. And what do they do? They send Shahid Afridi out to open the batting. And what does he do? He cracks 59 from 59 before the close of play on day four. But that is where the whole test match changes because just before stumps, right on the stroke of stumps, Kumble gets a freedy. So they're 95 for one at stumps on day four. And then the first ball of day five, Yunus Khan is also out to Kumble, stumped by Dinesh Kartik. And then from there, hope sort of fades for Pakistan, who are eventually all out for 226. So they, they lose uh, by 195 runs. But a great test match all the same. Kumble, who we've mentioned quite a few times already in the show, takes seven for 63, 10 wickets in the match for him. But just to uh, continue on with the series, Pakistan don't throw in the towel. Another high-scoring monster uh, to finish again back at the Chinnaswamy in Bangalore. Um, a double ton for Saywag, 267 for Yunus Khan in response. And, and Pakistan win a really high-scoring game by by 168 runs. So uh, a drawn series uh, at one test apiece. And yeah, a real shame that there's only been a couple of bilateral series since between those two nations because they, they absolutely stepped up when they were playing against each other in that wonderful era in the mid-2000s. I think that's Yunus Khan's second biggest score as well behind the triple, um, that 267. So yeah, mm. a huge mm. one in that series. Uh, so that's, uh, that's a possible answer there for six again. I've got Jai Sharma. Uh, $1.40 with a clue that says it involved a time when the bat was raised at an unusual milestone. Mm. I was trying to figure this out. I, I spent a lot of time on Sachin because I was wondering, did he did he reach a milestone number of career runs on 140 and thus raise the bat? And the, the first thing I was thinking was when he went past Brian Lara's record to become the top run scorer of all time. That was 11,953 that Lara made. But in that match... Tendulkar makes 88 and then 10 not out, so 98 in the match. Um, he was quite keen on getting his milestones against Australia, so he went past his 14,000th run against Australia as well in um, in 2010, that game that India won by one wicket with Laxman uh, doing the business at mm. the end with Pragyan Oja. So Tendulkar made 98 and 38 in that game, so that's not it. Uh, went past his 9,000th run in Sydney when he made the 241. But there was nothing there for Tendulkar. I looked at Dravid as well. I was thinking of, you know, high, high run scorers. Um, He reached 2,000 runs when he was on 147. Not 140. Close, but not quite there. That was against New Zealand in 1999. And he got his 11,000th run when he was on 173 against Sri Lanka in 09. uh, So I haven't been able to pin it down, uh, Jay, but if you would like to help me along, send me a message um, and let me get closer to the truth. Yeah, I must say, when I I read this clue from Jai, my first thought was 10,000 runs as well. I, I thought about going through when every player who's hit 10,000 runs, like how they did it, whether they were, went on to make 140 or on 140. But I looked at Sachin first and, yeah, as you say, it, it wasn't – it didn't quite work. So um, hmm, watch this space. But do let us know. Uh, I, I wondered, I, I'm sure – I wondered too if it might be something like one of those ones where someone takes a really long time to get off the mark and they raise the bat for their first run, that sort of thing, if it's a, a tail ender. But I couldn't – I couldn't reconcile how that would fit with the 140. So we've had a decent look at it, but uh, we're not there yet. 
Yeah, yeah. I might come back to taking a long time to get off the mark a bit later uh, in the show, actually, Jeff. Uh, next number uh, and next pledges, we've got another double header. Two double headers in the same show. I like this. 389. Uh, they're both in AUD uh, and uh, they are from Chris Beatty and Ross Morley. And Jeff, I'm going to take Ross. He sent us through a clue. He did. It says, my amount relates to a player who had a long and successful career spanning two distinct eras, but is not often discussed. I have my own ideas as to why, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. And this is kind of my sweet spot in a way. I, I didn't mean for it to be, but it kind of became an area of expertise on on my part for a couple of years there. And it's to do with Michael Clark, I, I would imagine. Great game of cricket. Test cap number 389, so thus the, the number that, that Ross is referring to. You know, uh, the clue here, a long and successful career, yes, spanning two distinct areas, absolutely, but not often discussed. And I'd agree with that. I reckon since Clark's retired, he gets nowhere near the same degree of adulation as his peers, or maybe those who came just before him and I've been thoroughly fascinated by the way that Michael Clark has been interpreted for as long as I've been you know writing about the game and, and well before that really you know, I go back to his first stretch in the Australian team and I've told this story before I could not have thought more negatively around him uh, at the very start of his test career not because he didn't earn it because I just had this parochial sense that he he shouldn't have been there ahead of Brad Hodge right and this kind of really reductive and lazy belief that he didn't care enough or something like that, which is ridiculous. You know, I was sort of a 20, 21-year-old and, and was lining up the facts to suit my narrative rather than viewing objectively this precocious, gifted, brilliant young cricketer. But, you know, he's arriving in the one-day team. Indeed, he's opening the batting in the one-day team in that 2004-05 um, series and, you know, making a lot of runs, just as Steve Waugh's finishing up, I suppose. So it's the end of the Steve Waugh era, but he nearly gets picked in 0203 when Mark Waugh's dropped. He would have been next cab off the rank. They go with Darren Lehman, but could have easily been uh, Michael Clark a couple of years into his professional career. Such was the start that he had for New South Wales and, and the esteem he was held in. And, and yes, he goes on uh, into that much later era, retiring in 2015, by which time the team have gone all the way down to the bottom. He's fell out of the team a couple of times and they're back to number one under his captaincy. So, I mean, the way I led my wisdom bit on him when he retired, so the first thing I ever wrote for the Almanac, they invited me to write a piece um, reflecting on Clark's retirement. I started it by saying it's complicated and using the sort of old Facebook um, <laughs> uh, you know, relationship uh, measure in a relationship, single or it's complicated. Well, I said it's complicated, the Australian relationship with Michael Clark. And the way I framed it up was that he was the first Gen Y captain and we didn't quite know how to, how to place him. As I said before, brilliant, 100 on debut in the baggy green. You know, I remember he actually called for mm-hmm. his baggy green. You know, he, he didn't want to, he, didn't, he wanted to be in that cap making 100 on debut as if it were foretold, you know what I mean? A century in his first test in Australia against New Zealand. There's the six for nine at work, rest and play uh, to end that series in India. But he looks so different to those who come before him. And he's the golden boy for like a year. And he's dropped after the 2005 Ashes series. And then he doesn't quite have that prolific run. I mean, 06, 07, there's a couple of centuries there. He's part of the 5-0 winning team, but he's far from the dominant force that it looks like he's going to be. And the, the epitome of that is in the 20 innings that span the Lara Bingle saga, and that's what it was, you know, when he flew home from a test series and then flew back, made a century. Well, from that point, until he takes the captaincy at the end of 2010, he averages 31. 
And it's not an exaggeration to say that when he walked out on the SCG at the start of 2011 to finish that series as the stand-in captain, Ricky Ponting was injured and Clark was given the job uh, that week, he was booed by some segments of the crowd. I mean, you know, Jeff, we've, we've talked before about booing. It only takes a couple of people to sound loud, so it's not a representative sample, but the very fact that he was being booed at all on his home ground as the new Australian captain, it, it, it says a bit about where he sat, I reckon, in the public conversation around then. Even at board level, Dan Bredig's book, Whitewash to Whitewash, does, and this is from a few years ago, but it does a great job in explaining just how much tension there was on the board and how a number of board directors tried to block Clark becoming the captain when really he was the only obvious choice. There was no one else who could have captained the Australian test team other than bringing back Simon Kadic maybe, which would have been a bit left field given that he wasn't at that point in the test team. Uh, It kind of had to be Clark. He'd been the vice captain for a couple of years before that, right? So it says a lot about where he was. And then he goes on this incredible run. He ends up being perfect for that team in transition after the 10-11 debacle where they have the Argus review and, you know, the root and branch and all the rest of it. And there's Michael Clark. You know, he's a gambler as a tactician, which suited the team. He needed to be the best player in the team. He was the best player in the team. Uh, in the first 30 test matches after he became full-time captain, he struck 12 centuries, including two doubles and that triple at the SCG against India. He was the number one ranked batsman in the world through some of that period. He leads Australia to a thumping victory over India at home. And sure, we might have considered that normal then, but, you know, press fast forward to now, we we might have undervalued uh, that performance at the time, beating India as they were emerging as a massive force away from home as well. Um, they were the two epic innings at Cape Town in 2011 and, and 2014, uh, which probably is his last truly great innings when he had his broken shoulder and that and that stoush with Mornay Morkel, so gutsy. Then the grief-stricken century at Adelaide Oval uh, after Phil Hughes passed away with the torn hamstring. That was, again, against India, a miraculous effort. In, in hindsight, he probably should have retired then, but he wanted that home World Cup, and he probably used up a fair bit of goodwill there, Jeff, I reckon. You know, the, the way he came back into the one-day team, which was playing under George Bailey, but Clark wanted back. He passed the fitness test. He got back in the team. He made 70-odd in that World Cup final, and, and left the stage and had that lovely moment. But, you know, he, he might have, you know, he might have, I don't know, it's, it's how do you know um, what he would have done, I suppose, in hindsight. But uh, finishing up, uh, he did later that year in 2015 in England. But it's not on a good note. Uh, they get pumped in England, really, uh, by the time. It's a two-all, sorry, it's a 3-2 scoreline. But the defeats in the Midlands are so mm. profound that it feels like a heavy defeat. He finishes as a four-time loser in England, twice as captain that really hurts him his batting average finishes with a four instead of a five and I know that's like a really small and subtle thing but you know five if it's if it's 50.02 as opposed to 49.84 or whatever it ends up being I reckon you thought of a little bit differently as well rightly or wrongly and as I kind of close that piece in for the Almanac in 2016 you know objective or subjective derision everything in between and I kind of wrote another piece for the Cricket Monthly later almost apologising to Clark for how I um, wrote about him in 2015 as a new journalist on the beat when I wasn't, I perhaps wasn't quite sensitive enough to what was going on with him after the Phil Hughes tragedy. Yeah, it, it's taken it taken quite a bit of thinking for me to, 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 to work out where he sits, but I absolutely agree with the thesis of Ross that a fabulous cricketer who doesn't get held in that same esteem, despite the fact that what he achieved on the field, he probably deserves to.
It's interesting, isn't it, in terms of not being talked about. So one thing that really stood out to me was over the last Ashes summer where they had, I don't know, three TV networks and about 14 radio stations covering the series, all scrambling for you know whatever former players they could find, people being coveted out, all the rest of it. Not one of them included Michael Clark, which as a former captain is, is pretty yep. interesting. He does commentary in India and so on, but but doesn't get a gig anywhere in Australia. And, and that seems to be instructive that networks don't think that it will be well received. That's my interpretation of it anyway. So it is an interesting one. And that, I mean, he does some radio stuff on a, on a program where it, it seems like from the outside, a lot of it's about getting a controversial, getting a spicy take that they can wrap up into a headline and say, Michael Clark slams somebody or other, whether it's that cynical, I don't know, but that that goodwill still isn't there for whatever reason. Yeah, and being a bad broadcaster, and I'm not saying he's a bad broadcaster, by the way, but if he was seen to be a bad broadcaster, that's hardly a hurdle in terms of getting a gig. As a former Australian captain, I mean, that's your passport. To, uh, that, that's, your, that's your entry ticket to a seat in one of the commentary mm. boxes, surely. Uh, there are very poor broadcasters who've seemingly got jobs for life. So, and I know this is subjective, but, and everyone has their own preferences with broadcasters and there'd be people out there who think we're rubbish and that's fine, that's their prerogative. But we didn't play mm. for Australia and we didn't captain Australia as well as he did through that tricky period and we didn't make 30-odd test hundreds or whatever it was that he finished with and we didn't lead Australia to a World Cup either. So, 28. you know, 28 was it. So there's a lot in his favour. As you say, I reckon you're right as a barometer as to where he's held because um, he did do commentary at the start, didn't he? Channel 9 had When, when he was injured. So after, after, he made, after he did his hamstring at Adelaide, they put him on for the rest of that summer. Oh, that's um, right, yeah, for yeah. For the last yeah. three test matches and, and he was analytically quite good. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's curious that, you know, in an era where anybody who's played one match for Australia can pretty much rock up and, and pop into a comp box somewhere. It's interesting that he's not there. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of this does come back to the idea that he was the, he was the bridge between eras, as Ross states in terms of playing eras, but also like generations as far as we consider, you know, Gen X, Gen Y and all the rest of it. He was the first Gen Y captain. You know, so having tattoos all over him and being an underwear model, and you know, I don't. It doesn't. Like, that doesn't jar with me. But I'm part of the same generation. It did jar with a lot of people out there. Now, a lot of people thought that Australian captains should sound and look like Alan Border and Steve Waugh and Mark Taylor. And he was such a departure from that that yeah, it did. And even Ricky Ponting to an extent, he fits far more with the former yeah. than the latter. That Clark was and now it wouldn't you wouldn't think twice about it if Clark had all of those attributes as Aussie captain. I know Cummins doesn't, but if Pat Cummins had, you know, a sleeve tat, we wouldn't be well, talking no about one, it. No, but it was certainly a no talking point there. When Mitchell Johnson used his sleeve tattooed arm to take thirty seven wickets against England in thirteen fourteen, for instance, <laughs> under Clark's captaincy. So, you know, it's it's Clark, interesting yeah. how quickly it shifts. Uh, so that's the that's yeah. the three eight nine for Ross. For Chris, um, where it's an open slate, I've interpreted this as Peter Hanscom's test batting average of thirty eight point nine. Nice. Because we were talking about Peter Hanscom on the weekly show um, only a few days ago. So there's a chance that that average could change in future. You know, he's, he's he could be back at some point. Um, I think people forget that he made two tonnes in his first four test matches in 2016. Um, seemed to be the 
He averaged, didn't he average 100 in that series or something? Um, He seemed to be the future. Uh, He got to 110 in Sydney. Do you remember this one? He, when he, he was out hit wicket because he nicked the leg stump when he was playing a late cut. He got so deep in his crease to Wahab Riaz and played a late cut away to backward point. That's right. And just clipped the, the very toe of the bat, just kisses the leg stump. And about six seconds later, the bail tips off. And no one noticed except for Safraz Ahmed, who was behind the stumps and pointed it out. They had to go to the third umpire. But he was out hit wicket for that 100. So he went to India and Bangladesh in 2017. Did a really good job on those tracks. The draw at, at Rancho Relax. So yeah. the, the really hard innings that he played in Bangladesh when it was about 58 degrees or whatever it was. And he got two tests in the ashes after that and then was gone. All of the talk about his technique and batting too deep in the crease to James Anderson and all the rest of it, and he was gone. Brief comeback when India had their first series win in Australia in eighteen nineteen, and he made some scores. He sort of made 20s and 30s, but nothing big, um, and hasn't been back since. And it's also easy to forget how good he was in the one-day team. Even after that, um, through that period when Steve, Steve Smith yeah. was suspended... Hanscom was the middle order engine. He was really good in that one day team. He he made that all those runs in the massive run chase when they went and played in India just before the yep. World Cup. And then he got the chop because Smith was coming back and he was basically the same player. So likewise, hasn't had another chance in the white ball team since. So made that big hundred for Victoria uh, last week to save the match and maybe he's got more to give. I genuinely believe he does. I mean, yeah, you're right. We remember Ashton Turner at the end in that chase of 360 at Mahali, which really turbocharged their World Cup push, didn't it? But it was Hanscom who made 100 earlier in the innings. Well, his al- first... Alongside Turner as well. He, he made 100 at, yeah. at, from memory, it was faster than a runner ball. It was a really brilliant... Yeah, I reckon it's his first 100 away from home for Australia or something like that. I reckon he made a one-day 100 earlier in his career. Anyway, something like that. And just to elaborate on that point, it proved to be a good selection to pick Mitch Marsh when they did in the 1780 Nashes. You can't refute that. 180-odd at the Wacker, 100 at Sydney. I mean, that's fine. He got squeezed out then. That's just the way it goes sometimes. It doesn't mean that it wasn't stiff. I mean, you're dead right about that innings at at Chittagong. He made 88 and he lost seven kilos. And I don't remember the exact metric, but um, Kate Hutchison, who was the the team's media manager at the time, uh, supplied us with a a, a little factoid when we were writing about it to say they calculated that it was the toughest batting conditions that Australia had ever been involved in since they measured. It was like combining humidity with heat with something else and right. they'd never experienced anything like it as, as a you know the, the analyst who, who assessed these things in terms of sports science and all the rest of it. And Hanskin was legitimately on his hands and knees, on his haunches between balls and somehow summoning uh, the sort of the concentration and the strength to, to get through that really tough session. That was David Warner's slowest test ton, which gives you some sense of how hard it was out there in Chittagong. And the two of them were, were effectively match winning. So, and yeah, to think from there, he was dispensed with two test matches later. And yeah, he got that opportunity in South Africa because of sandpaper. He wouldn't have played in that fourth test in Johannesburg if not for the sandpaper debacle. He probably wouldn't have played against India if they didn't do a recalibration of the team before the last test match. Uh, It was at Sydney, wasn't it, that final test match. He didn't play in the UAE uh, between times in in 2018. So he really was, we often talk about players who have been hard done by by selectors and, you know, dropped at strange times and not given another opportunity. Kawaja, often that's the narrative arc with him. It's the same with Hanscom, 
And it is true to say that he was travelling around the world and kind of exhausted by the time the pandemic hit. Lots of T20 cricket, lots of franchise leagues and, and so on. Lots of county cricket. So he's played for about four clubs. And he hasn't had a great time of it, with the exception of uh, a couple of great hundreds for Victoria over the last two years. And he, I mean, he was still the, the one-day player of the year last year for Victoria as well, I'm pretty sure. But yeah, I think there's more to be written about this guy and more to be said about him. And I really hope uh, what happened last week is the start of a big end to the season for him and, and it goes on to uh, turn into a, a big 2022 for him at Lords as well. Our next number comes in from Ramaswamy. It is $20.15 in greenbacks uh, and Ramaswamy has sent us through a poem and here is how it goes. This is the clue. He could have been a one-test nobody who debuted in a historic defeat. His exit in triumph was sure to follow on, but in a losing cause, no mean feat. He played in the true spirit of the game, applauding opponents others slighted. He remains one of my unlikely favourites, and a shot at coaching has me delighted. Well, thank you, Ramaswamy, who's a, who's a fabulous uh, correspondent as well. He's been uh, sending me some excellent writing uh, of his that relates to pronunciation uh, specifically with Indian player names and um, I'll, I'll be uh, I'll be keeping that close by when we go to Pakistan actually uh, next month Jeff let's work through this together because I, I don't think either of us have quite stuck the landing here but my first thought was well who are the players or former players who are doing the rounds at the moment who might end up coaching a national team you know maybe just Jason Gillespie Andrew McDonald Paul Collingwood they all could be seen as unlikely favourites, although in the case of Gillespie and Collingwood, they were both kind of stars. I mean, Collingwood led a World Cup and Gillespie is one of Australia's greatest fast bowlers. So Andrew McDonald, I mean, did he have, did we see enough of him to be seen as uh, someone who, who applauded opponents who others slighted? I don't think we saw enough of him playing for Australia to draw that conclusion, although he's a lovely man. So that's where I started to run dry a little bit. I mean, it can't be Rahul Dravid because he, he debuted in a draw, uh, not in historic defeat. So I, I kind of got wrapped up in circles a bit here, Jeff, but where did you land? Well, so I was looking at um, Indian players who coach, who debuted in a historic defeat. Uh, so someone who fits that bill is Robin Singh because he debuted when Zimbabwe beat India uh, in 1996, ah. the, the miracle of Harare when they set India 235 and bowled them out. I think it was his only test match, Robin Singh. Uh, so he has been a coach, but he, he's not recently a coach. He's, he coached Hong Kong, he coached the USA. I wouldn't say he had a career that ended in triumph. He, his last match was a losing ODI. Um, so Robin Singh was a, he came to mind, but I don't think he's recent enough to count as a coach. Yeah, I mean, and there's Wasim Jaffa was another one who's a, a rising coach. I suppose I see Wasim Jaffa mostly as um, with his back and forth with uh, Michael Vaughan on Twitter. They they love to bait each other. But yeah, he, he's been coaching. He made his debut in a loss to South Africa in 2000, but didn't end in triumph. I mean, India won his last test, but he didn't make any runs. So I, I, I don't think he quite meets the criteria. And then there's the, the the sort of current coaching panel who've come in under Dravid. So there's Faras Mambre, who's the new bowling coach. He debuted in a defeat at Edgebaston in 96, but he only played one more test in a, a draw at Lords. Um, didn't have much of a career. And this was interesting. So debuting in the same match at Edgebaston, 
was Vikram Ratur, who is now India's batting coach. So the bowling coach and their batting coach debuted in the same match in 96. Right. He didn't do much in his whole career. He played six tests as an opener and averaged 13. So he didn't play enough tests to get on our worst openers of all time list. But if, he, <laughs> if he'd snuck a couple more in, he would have done at the rate that he'd gone. So that one doesn't stick either. So I think we've, we've tried a few things, Ramaswamy, but we haven't got there. Yeah, and look, I think what we should do here, Jeff, is um, acknowledge that uh, uh, we're going to have to come back to this one, but uh, in recognition of the fact that it's a beautiful poem, uh, and, well, let's be honest, he's pulled out of the spreadsheet randomly anyway. Ramaswamy, you are the recipient of a slab of Brick Lane, (laughs) which you can uh, send to anyone you see fit. I'm not sure if you're based in uh, Australia or or India or or the UK or or somewhere further afield than that, but uh, someone who you like in Australia uh, might um, be where you direct a slab, which is 24 cans of the good stuff, which is the award-winning good stuff, Jeff. uh, They've been in great shape recently in the Craft Beer Awards in Australia. Uh, I can see through the screen you've got one in your hand right now. I am enjoying... A one love pale ale, uh, right. As, as we speak, I was sent home from Hampton Cricket Club with a, a crate of them. So that is the award-winning beer. That's the one that won the, the, uh, the best pale ale at the World Beer Awards. Can't do much better than that. So, yes, yeah, somebody on the show each week gets to give away a slab. And Ramaswamy, if, if you're in Australia, you can give it away to yourself. And if you're not, you can give it away to anybody else on this continent. And thanks to everybody who's been uh, engaging with Brick Lane on social media. That's very kind of you. We have a great relationship uh, with them. But if you don't already follow Brick Lane on Instagram, especially, and they're not so active on Twitter, I've noticed, Jeff, but they are big on Instagram. That tends to be the platform of choice these days for the cool kids, which is probably why I'm so bad at it. Um, I feel like we're these two old men who still hang out on Twitter with like you know, with, with, well, with undesirables for the most part. But um, I basically feel like, you know, the scene with Dr. Evil where he goes, I'm hip, I'm cool. And then I realised like you can't even make that joke as a reference to young people about how you are uncool because that movie's so old they wouldn't have seen it. So. <laughs> yes, yes, it comes full circle there. But yeah, Instagram, I think it's Brick Lane Brewing Co. You know what, you'll find it. It's easy like that. Thanks again to everybody who voted uh, for Brick Lane and their various beers, including the One Love in that competition earlier in the month. And as you would have heard off the top with the uh, the beautiful tones of our executive producer, Jay Mueller, uh, there are more giveaways with Brick Lane at the moment via the final word. So bricklanebrewing.com. Thanks to them for their brilliant support of what we're doing here on the show. Our last new number comes in from Joseph Ryan. It is 421 in AUD. And it comes with a clue. And I should say for all of the criticism of Twitter, the only time I've met Joe in real life or Joseph in real life was when he put his hand up to play for a team I was captaining at the time for Endeavour Hills having seen a shout out on Twitter saying we're, we're, we're one short we could do with a player and, and he came along and represented us uh, some years ago so uh, and I know he's a massive Melbourne supporter and of course he, he enjoyed that wonderful premiership last year yes there's a clue here the number relates to the first one day international that I went to Joseph says okay so I will assume this involves an Australia match given the currency interesting Interestingly, nobody's ever taken four for 21 against Australia. Uh, quite a few four for 21s in, in the, the history bank. And only twice has it happened uh, for Australia. So I'm guessing that Joseph was not in Kolkata in 2003 for the big one, the TVS Cup final. Uh, remember that? Yeah, we all play back the videotape of the TVS Cup final uh, to watch the freak <laughs> flummox the Indians at the death. 
Three of them yes. bowled and one of them caught to run through the tail. He finished with four wickets in eight balls at the end, uh, which ended him with the figures for the day of four for 21 from 4.5 overs. Um, but unless you were travelling at the time, Joseph, you probably weren't there. The only other option then is David Hussey who we've talked about a little bit on the show in the last couple of weeks as well, when he was in the one-day team in January 2011. So this is just after that Ashes pasting that we talked about when Michael Clarke took over the Test captaincy. One of those seven-match one-day series, Australia dominated it after the Test loss. They won 6-1 in the end. Ponting was out with the broken finger. So this team, this is a blast from the past, even looking at the 11. Shane Watson and Brad Haddon opening the batting. Sean Marsh, Clarke. Cameron White, David Hussey at six, Steve Smith at seven. Did you know he started his career as a leg spinner and used to bat down the order, <laughs> Steve Smith? It's a little known fact that people might be surprised by. John Hastings was in there, the Duke, Brett Lee, Doug Bollinger and Xavier Doherty. Yeah, at the start of the series, Jeff, with that one, Michael Hussey, I think he hit the winning runs or, or at least he was there. He played like a really influential hand in, in winning and sending Australia 1-0 up, but he tore his hamstring and he... Thus began a, a race against time uh, to make the 2011 World Cup. I reckon he got there just, if I recall correctly. Did he? I think he got to the World Cup, but it was real touch and go stuff. Which yeah, which meant that there was a um, there was only one hussy on that team sheet and not two. So uh, when this hussy uh, got the ball, I mean England were flying. They were on 224 with 10 overs to go. Jonathan Trott on 102, and David Hussey with his little sliders. He used to he bowled left arm, didn't he, David Hussey? His little. Uh, Right he bowled a little, um, he bowled a little Roger Harper's. He bowled sort of um, off spin that was quite uh, nude, uh, sort of quite sidearm. Yeah, quite, mm. quite sidearm when I say the Roger Harper's, like he used to come around on the 45 degree angle, so to speak. So he, uh, he slid one through Jonathan Trott on the cut and bowled him. Got Owen Morgan reverse sweeping to point. And then he gets asked to bowl the 48th and the 50th overs, which for a part time spitter in a one day is a bit of a task. Um, he gets Paul Collingwood and Ahmed Shazad caught in the deep. Um, England still got to 299. Thank Thanks to Michael Yardy. Remember him? He bashed 40-odd. And that was the mm. one match they won in the series. Um, they got to 299 and, and bowled out Australia short. So that's my only bid for Joseph Ryan, is it has to be okay. the 4 for 21 that David Hussey took. Very good. The, the, only, uh, the only thing I'd say is that I just got a feeling that Joseph might have attended one-day internationals before 2011. But, um, but we will see. The beauty of this is that um, he, he can tell us when it was, and we'll read of that next week. We, we, um, we are about to start our revisits here, and they work best when you basically tell us what we're looking for so we can uh, tell your story uh, when we get your number on the rebound and we can uh, collect the rebound and put the ball in the basket. Uh, and Jeff, uh, that is the end of our new numbers. We have been going for an hour and nine minutes. These shows are getting longer, but that's okay. We're enjoying it. We're telling uh, lengthy stories longer by the week, which probably means it's time for us to take a brief break and return with about half a dozen revisits, then a bunch of confirmations. It also means that uh, if you want to get on the show, go to patreon.com slash the final word. You can send in a nerd pledge. We will do it on the show and you stand a very good chance of winning the Brick Lane giveaway. Many reasons to do it. We'll be back in just a second with three visits. Hi, I'm Natalie Jimonis and you listen to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. I'm telling you, these Woodstock bats 
are the best. Winnie absolutely loves hers. Uh, I've got it here somewhere. I might have. In fact, she has taken it into the other room. Her language is coming on quite a bit at the moment, as we've talked about before, Jeff. She now knows what the word massive means. Uh, so she can kind of say, oh, that's massive. So I'm looking forward to when she's watching the cricket uh, in years to come and going, wow, that's massive. Mostly at the moment using that, that descriptor to talk about when she's got a very big nappy. But uh, yeah, she her, her bat looks massive compared to her. It's um, mm. a beautiful bit of kit there from, from Woodstock who kindly made it by hand, as they do all their bats, made with love. Uh, all of their bats are handmade. They're not made in some uh, factory where, you know, it's just on the production line. All of these uh, are made to specification and that's why uh, we love working with them because they are making these at a very affordable price and then we're giving you 20% off on top of that. Oh, that is massive. Uh, when she learns to say big dukes, uh, let me know. You know when, when, <laughs> when someone puts up their big dukes and clunks one. Uh, yeah, massive, massive is the discount, 20% off. Uh, you just put in TFW20 at the checkout, pads, gloves, bags, clothes, bats, whatever. 20% off just because you're friends with us. Good deal at woodstockcricket.co.uk. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. This is The Final Word Story Time, the revisit section. Uh, let's look back at Karan Shah's $4 even. Now, we guessed, because this was related to Vinu Mancad in some way, we guessed that it was Maeva Duma with her four runouts at the non-striker's end. Karan said, I, I loved hearing Jeff delve into Vinu Mancad's history, but the Maeva Duma episode is the one that sent me down the rabbit hole of researching unusual dismissals from where I found my number. My pledge relates to a type of dismissal that I find more satisfying and that I was quite surprised to see that Vinu Mancad was also quite proficient at. Karen, this is a cracker. Thank you uh, for this. So, yeah, I mean, I, I was surprised when it wasn't Maeva Duma. I was certain that you had that right last week, Jeff. Your your logic was so sound. But yes, we had to take another step. So I'm thinking, well, well what constitutes an unusual dismissal? And he mentioned that, that Mancat himself was proficient at one of them. And I started looking through all of his career wickets, all 162 of them. And on three occasions, he had batsmen out hit wicket, which for an off spinner, is quite something. I mean, you think of hit wicket as the, you know, the big bustling same at Brett Lee last ball of the day having Ashley Giles stand on his stumps, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You don't think of an off spinner having batsmen do that, but but so he did. Three times out of 162 dismissals in test cricket, which you know, is a pretty high percentage, and we'll, we'll come to that a bit more in a moment. But remember the original clue said better than Mancat or better than a Mancat. So I'm thinking, okay, right. So if somebody had more than three hit wickets off them, indeed, has anyone had four? And four is the most, and it's Garth McKenzie, Jeff. We were talking about the great Garth McKenzie probably two or three months ago and telling his story uh, in Test cricket, but we never thought to look through his wickets and see how many times he had batsmen dismissed hit wicket. It was four, uh, and, and it's a pretty good list too, by the way. So McKenzie, four wickets out of 246, so 1.62%. Headley Verity, three out of 144, another spinner, which is the, the highest percentage, 2.08% of his wickets uh, were hit wicket. Ray Lindwall, three out of 228, 1.31%. Mancad, we mentioned before, three out of 162, which is second on the percentage measure, 1.85. And then Fred Truman, three out of 307, 0.97%. Oh, one more, sorry, Kapil Dev, 
three out of four hundred and thirty-four, so a, a much lower percentage there at zero point six nine. But nice. Garth McKenzie, uh, nice indeed. Garth McKenzie uh, with the four. I went through them. The first was in Karachi in nineteen sixty-four, where he dismissed Javed Berkey. I couldn't see any reportage on this, so uh, I, I thought I'd just keep jumping through the list. The second was in Johannesburg in nineteen sixty-six. Herbert Tiger Vance was out hit wicket to <laughs> McKenzie. Um, I, you always like it when a nickname ends up on the scorecard too, and in much the same way it was for Tiger Patauri. Tiger Vance uh, gets recognised that way when, when you jump on Crick Info. Well, and it has- equally Vinu Mancad, whose name was not Vinu, but that was his that was his childhood nickname that stuck with him through his whole life. Exactly. I suppose if if, uh, if Buddy Franklin played cricket, uh, he, his name on the scorecard would be hopefully Lance Buddy Franklin. Um, next, how's next, this? To, next to pluck a duck. Next to pluck a duck, of course. Uh, so I mentioned, so this was 1966, right? The Tour of Africa. Later in the same series at Port Elizabeth, Mike Proctor, a young Mike Proctor, one of his four, four? test matches, Jeff, I, I think, think it was. Four. Well, he got out hit wickets to McKenzie. And then on the next tour of South Africa that Australia made in 1970, at the same ground, Ali Bucker was out hit wicket to McKenzie. So twice in the same series in 66-67 and then twice at the same ground three years apart, 1967 and 1970 to make up the four. And that was uh, Garth's final test match away from home. All four of his hit wicket dismissals were away from home as well. Better than Mancad, you beauty. Thank you, Karen Shah. Must be it. Must be it. Very good. Well done. Uh, Nick Coates with the 1654, where you talked about the story of Vincent van der Bill, who was a, another South African who didn't play any test cricket. Giant fast bowler. Nick says, love the story on Storytime 79, and uh, I almost feel like I should lie because of the enthusiasm in Adam's storytelling. The number actually relates to the pop song that Brett Lee released in India in 2007. The main chords are G, E minor, D and C. But one of the great things about music is that you can talk about chords in purely relative terms denoted by Roman numerals. So you can play the same pattern in a different key. The pattern here is I-V-I-V-I-V, which to tie it back to the clue is not an unusual chord progression, but releasing an Indian pop song is an interesting development for a fast (laughs) pop. So thank you for that, Nick, because we would never in a million years have got that clue correct, but uh, you've solved it for us. Let's drop in uh, a couple of bars of Brett Lee and the uh, and the pop song in question. Can you tell a girl you don't know that you're the one for me? Do you walk right up, play it cool, or simply let her see? I know I'm different, I'm not for me, I'm just another guy. With blonde hair though, it's hard to hide, I think I got you right. The next up is Michael Bell with $5.12. Adam talked about the 5 for 12 taken by Vray Patel for Kenya last year. He says, nice try, but the Kenyan lefty took his 5 for 12 in November and I made the pledge in July. Uh, <laughs> Perhaps this clue will jog a few Gen X memories. The number links, final word favourites, Alan Lamb and Capital Dev. Yeah, so I originally thought we were looking at, you know, something relating to, you know, the score 512. Of course, we used bowling figures last week. There were some tangential links to number 512 in games that that Lamb and Capital Dev were both involved in, but we decided to scrap all of that and... In fact, we're back to Roman numerals again. Uh, so uh, we just had a Roman numerals related number. And here's another. What do Alan Lamb and Kapildev have in common? They both used the Slazenger 
12, which if you look at the bat with the Slazinger, used to have the V above the 12, thus 512. So <laughs> that's oh, what the God. 512 relates to. Uh, I mean, of course, I, I was, of course, I was never going to get it. But once you know what, what you're looking for, uh, and Michael gave me some assistance with this, you're off to the races. So just to start with Capital Dev, when you've got the time, just do a Google image search of the bat that he used in the 1983 World Cup. Famously, there's the 175 against Zimbabwe at Tunbridge Wells in Kent, just over the, the sort of the ancient border there. There's no vision of this innings, by the way, because, you know, um, all of these World Cup games in 83 were played on the same day and they were playing match of the day and, and that kind of thing, which is criminal. But there are plenty of stills. And this bat basically looks like an early mongoose. If you can imagine, there are no corners to the top of the mm. bat. The, the corners are cut off. Lance Cairns used to use a, a similar one with the, the shoulders cut off that was yeah, made by so, a New Zealand bat maker, the idea being that you couldn't you couldn't edge one off the shoulder of the bat. Right, well, there you go. I, di- I didn't know that back, background. I didn't know that Lance Cairns used one of these either. But, but Capel Dev did, uh, of course, and they went on to, to win that 1983 World Cup under his captaincy. An extraordinary innings, by the way. He comes in at 5 for 17 and makes 175 not out in 138 balls to get India 266 for 8. There's a claim for that being the, the greatest one-day innings of all time, I suppose, given uh, the circumstances and given that Zimbabwe had just knocked off Australia. But yes, where I went with this is that, yeah, it's the era when Slazinger was king, really, wasn't it? Where, where these bats, I mean, Viv Richards using the V500 early in his career before the, the Duncan Fernley days. Alan Lamb, who also used uh, the Slazinger 12, smashing all those centuries against the West Indies that we spoke of on Storytime. Back in December, there's the, the Mark Ward debut using the V100 and then he used the V800 later in his career. But I think the, the most memorable images of Mark Ward's career are, are holding up that, that V100. Uh, my brother and I um, had one of the, the V800s. That, that, that was actually my brother's bat, but it became our backyard bat when we were a little bit older, which became our front driveway bat, to be honest with you. We, uh, my, my parents put up a, a garage, which we had a garage door. And we had those old Merv Hughes incredible balls that were soft and we would just play for hour after hour uh, in the driveway there in Endeavour Hill. So nice memories of the V800 there for me personally. But yeah, such a distinctive V that Slazenger Bats had back then. I learnt from a really nice piece in the Cricketer magazine by Hugh Turberville a couple of years ago that they were all handmade in that era by Eric Loxton, who was the bat maker before the machines took over. So a similarity there um, really with what we talk about with Woodstock, that all of the bats there are still handmade and uh, a part of their charm. But with Slazinger, they were, they, the ownership structure changed. They were, they, were, they were then taken over by Sports Direct and I suppose they, their presence in cricket has diminished thereafter. However, they do still sell the vintage bats. And as a consequence, if you want to get the V12, it, it still is there uh, for you and um, and Michael Bell explained to us in, in a subsequent piece of correspondence that he uh, that he still is using one in recent years he's had a run uh, opening the batting for the Barwon Heads thirds with varying degrees of success and it's raised some eyebrows when he walks out with the old V12 and it's the only bat he scored a ton with so uh, thank you Michael <laughs> for giving us that chance to go back and look at old bats I know that's a, a favourite topic of lots of people and he says uh, the Gen X link I'm sure a lot of Gen X listeners will, will remember that bat fondly. All right, James Harding with the uh, 464 that Adam talked about the score that uh, England made under celebrity racist Archie McLaren in the 1901-02 Ashes. No, it wasn't that. Uh, it wasn't that. You're kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> I said, love the story of an old Ashes series, but my 464 is more recent. At least I thought that was the number, but the internet must have rounded it up 46.3x 
Well, that has to be Damian Martin's test batting average, 46.37, which would be rounded up to 46.4 if you used one decimal place. Damian Martin turned 50 last October, and that average looked like it would be 50-plus for a long time, uh, a little like Michael Clark, Not quite. 48 was Michael Clark in the end, I think. Damian Martin, not popular when he rocked up because he replaced Dino in (laughs) 1992-93 at 21 years old as a prodigy. Uh, 59 and 6 in the Sydney loss to South Africa, and the 6 is the one that got him dropped for a long time, his seventh test match, and uh, had to wait from January 94 until March 2000 before he got his second go. Uh, He was a permanent fixture there until the 05 Ashes. Got that average above 50 in the series against Pakistan in 04-05. Made six tonnes in 2004 including on that tour of Sri Lanka where a guy who supposedly couldn't play spin worked out how to master Murali over there. 1,353 runs in that year um, and then made another 100 in Wellington en route to the Ashes, uh, but in England. 65 at Lords in the second dig was his only half century. Lots of starts, had some bad luck, got dropped, got brought back again for a last hurrah in South Africa, made 101 to finish the whitewash in Joburg, um, and there was an argument that that Australian team was never better than that. At that point, when when uh, Stuart Clark was the third seamer, Martin making those runs, missed out at Brisbane and Adelaide in the uh, the Ashes of 0607 and and pulled the pin very suddenly, walked out on the team mid series. They were all very surprised, but he finished up with 67 Tests, 4,406 runs at 46.37, uh, as well as winning the World Cup in 2003. That wonderful innings in the final, those cover-driven sixes when he made his 88 not out in the slipstream of Ricky Ponting's massive 100. Five one-day hundreds in 208 ODIs and he made a bunch of them opening the batting too. He used to get dropped in as a, an occasional sort of fill-in opening the batting and made a... remember him making 100 against Zimbabwe in that tri-series and 100 against England perhaps. Opening the batting had a, a wonderful record there. So Damien Martin, the stylist, uh, Robert Linder's favourite upload after all of the Viv Richards clips probably is the Damian Martin defensive shot that races before. Yeah, he was was such a great utility through that stretch. Because remember, when he comes back in 2000, uh, he's in New Zealand. It's kind of, it's as the number six. He's the spare bat for so long. He's making a lot of one-day runs. But, you know, there were 2,258 days where he was out of the test team. Uh, I mean, there have been longer stretches, of course, but that's the middle of his career, you know. In the middle of all of that, there's the Australia A season and all these runs for WA, runs in England as well. But, yeah, like, when he comes back, it's no sure thing he's going to have a test career. I mean, it's just his eighth test match, right? Then he goes on to play 67, so he was undroppable through the middle stretch of that. And, as you say, 2004, he was at his absolute best. And the stylist who took over from Mark War in many respects, and in the end, has a better record than Mark War. I know Mark War um, played for much longer and played twice as many test matches. But, you know, 13 centuries and averaging 46 and, and change, 46.4, that's that's a fine return. And, yeah, he, he probably would have finished with a test batting average above 50 had things just broken his way towards the end. But, yeah, kind of left quite abruptly and went off and finished in the... What's at the Indian Cricket League and as a few of the players did in 2008. I suppose they didn't really know what they were stepping into, but mm. he's still a bit of a fixture on, on social media. Often see him on Instagram and LinkedIn and all the rest of it. And he was most vociferous in his support of Justin Langer uh, in the last few weeks. So he's, he's still part of the, the rough and tumble of international cricket in, in various different ways. 
Last revisit, Crispin Crunch, 428. Uh, we talked about Afta Belloc making 428 in 1974. Crispy says, my previous clue was that this number was in line with previous pledges, Australian Test Cricket, Australia versus the Windies, and cricketers with Jeff Lemon-style hair. Uh, I suggested looking at the period immediately prior to AB's captaincy. The numbers are 4 and 28. This is confusing. Another way of viewing it might be 4 in brackets plus 13 plus 11 equals 28. (laughs) What have you got for this? (laughs) Yeah, got there in the end. Uh, thanks, Crispy. Uh, and I'm sorry this has taken so long to return to. Crispy actually sent us this revisit in November, but I was totally stumped and didn't work it out before I revisit the show. So that's why we're, we're here this week. And thanks for bringing that to my attention. So I thought it must be Kim Hughes because of the hair. And as you said, in the past, his clues have revolved around your hair. And Kim Hughes, another man with, with curly hair. Probably curlier than yours, I reckon, Jeff, but, you know, a similar kind of do. And digging a bit deeper, it became apparent that it must relate to the 28 test matches that Kim Hughes led Australia in uh, between 1978-79 and 1984. Far from an easy run of it. In fact, a dreadful time of it taken as a whole. He only filled in for one test at his home ground at the Wacker in 78-79 during the World Series era. Um, he'd only been in the test team for a year by that stage, by the way. I, I kind of didn't realise... Well, I did realise but I kind of didn't quite process that they they really did throw him in in the deep end. He'd been in the test team for a year and then he was already given the chance to captain it. So they did win that first test, by the way, against Pakistan, and that wouldn't happen uh, too often across his reign. The next time that he's captain, it's again in these away test matches in 1979-80 in India, and that's because Greg Chappell's leading them at home and because of World Series cricket. This actually was the last series played before the World Series cricket stars were available again, just before the peace deal. Um, So it's a bloody tough start. Six test matches in India for two losses and four draws. Probably not a bad outcome when you consider how subsequent Australian teams have fared over in India. Um, He made 594 runs over there himself in that series. So he really did lead from the front. Um, He had Andrew Hilditch for his vice-captain, but yeah, none of those established stars who are still over uh, with World Series cricket and about to come back together as one team. But, yeah, imagine that, Jeff. Imagine having a six-test match series against India in India now. I mean, we'd love it, but um, the probability of it happening, uh, we'll, we'll never see mm. another te- six-test series, will we? No, no. We'll we'll see threes and, and the occasional big team fives, and that's about all we'll see. Yeah. So back at home in 1980-81, it's straight back over to Greg Chappell. And then Kim Hughes gets it for the away series in 1981 in England. So we go through this back and forth when Chapel still wants to, to lead Australia, but only at home. His, his family and business interests are, have, have aligned in such a way that he doesn't want to be away. And that's not unreasonable, by the way. He, he'd been playing for Australia for 11 years by this point and, and was done with touring, in short. So famously, Australia win the first test match, a tight scrap at Trent Bridge. And both of them are sacked after that limp draw at Lords the following week. And everyone thinks that Australia in the third test are going to wrap it up at Headingley. Uh, they do well in the first innings. England are following on. And then there's the uh, the first of the Headingley miracles, the, the, the Botham miracle. And we all know what happens next. It's Headingley, then it's Edgbaston, then it's Manchester. Botham goes bang, bang, bang. Australia lose the series. They go from the cusp of winning the Ashes to a, a complete disaster. And, you know, when he comes home, 
the captaincies back to Greg Chappell. And it takes until they go overseas again in 1982-83 for Hughes to get the captaincy back and and they lose 3-0 uh, in a five-test match series. So at that point, Jeff, he's led Australia 15 times for two victories, which is pretty dreadful start with all of those test matches with the exception of the first being played away from home. He gets the full-time gig in this transition period with Chapel uh, in the home series against Pakistan uh, in 83-84. So they, they beat Pakistan 2-0 with Chapel, Lilly and Marsh still in the team, but they all retire at the SCG. And then it's this kind of like as has been well documented, it's like, oh, fuck, what now um, for Australian cricket when their three most established stars all walk out and say goodbye at the same time. And then they're off to the West Indies, which is no easy task. Uh, I mean, they, they do draw two test matches over there, but they lose 3-0. They only make 300 once, as Jim Maxwell often says when he's talked to us, Jeff, about this series. The Windies didn't lose a single second innings wicket across five test matches. And it's really where Alan Border's taking over in terms of his, his deeds with the batty top scores in five of the 10 innings for Australia, while Hughes is totally battling and he's copying pelters from Ian Chappell from back home, uh, saying that he shouldn't be captain. Chappell was furious that Marsh didn't get the job in the first place when when Hughes was getting it a couple of years earlier. So they, he had priors, I suppose, on, on that front. Dean Jones later spoke about what a dreadful time it was to start as an Australian cricketer. I mean, there was South African rebel money doing the rounds then and, you know, he didn't quite know how to deal with all of that. In the end, of course, Dino said no to the money and a number of them said yes, including including Hughes. That's the tour, of course, where Rodney Hogg throws a punch at Kim Hughes. Um, he, he takes a wicket, but he doesn't take the new ball and he's so angry at Hughes that he goes over and tries to deck him, which just seems ridiculous now, but that kind of gives a, a bit of a sense of the direction the whole thing was going. And when they were en route to losing the second test match of their next series, which was home against the Windies in 84-85, uh, in the middle of the test match, Hughes goes into the press conference and, and reads that famous statement to say that he was going to be resigning as Australian captain and it includes that, that famous line, the constant speculation criticism and innuendo from former players uh, across the media in the last four to five years have finally taken their toll and that was a, a fairly pointed criticism of, of Ian Chappell especially who by that point he was refusing to do the pre-match interviews, like he just wasn't he wasn't going to engage with, with Chapel because there was such an animosity between the pair of them. So Alan Border takes over mid-series and they have that, that win at Sydney and things don't quite correct themselves there, but it's the start of a new era under Alan Border. And the Hughes reign ends with four wins in 28 test matches. So in terms of the way that um, Crispy put this together, four wins, 13 losses and 11 draws. So four, 28. As for Hughes, his international career continued, but kept spiralling. It's quite sad that he, we talked about test averages of the greats. Well, Kim Hughes' batting average for his first, like, 25 test matches, maybe even more, maybe first 40 test matches was in the 50s and it finishes at 37.4 by the time uh, he's finished, of course, for the definitive account of the Hughes story. I can strongly recommend uh, Christian Ryan's Golden Boy, which is one of the, if not the best cricket book I've ever read. And then for the alternative history uh, on the 84-85 summer, Jeff, I've just finished Justin Smith's novel, Cooper Not Out. Justin's a, a columnist for the Herald Sun and sent me through a copy of that uh, to read as it's being released. I gather it's doing quite well. I might, I might get him on the final word to chat about it, actually, but he's written like this alternative reality of the 84, 85 Australian summer, which of course was the, the summer where, where Kim Hughes pulled the pin. So um, yeah, might, might get Justin on in, in weeks to come, but uh, 428 for Crispin Crunch, uh, that definitely relates to Kim Hughes and his captaincy career.
There we go. That's three visits. Uh, a few confirmations. Steve Dodkins 386 was indeed uh, what Alan Lamb made in a series against the Windies in 1984. He says, thanks for a really nice tribute to the man that was particularly timely given his recent health issues. Dane Hanstead's 239. Uh, that was when Matty Elliott made twin tons against WA. Dane says, the rare feat that I mentioned was registering two first-class centuries in the same day. How often has this happened? Uh, not yeah. much. I'm tipping. We had it. We, we thought it might have been to do with twin sons after following on, but I didn't realise it was all in the same day. I didn't. I went back and looked at the scorecards. Mm. That's that's quite the achievement. Uh, Brian Stratford, three eighty six. Uh, Jeff, you solved that perfectly. That's the number of runs that Northern Ireland have made collectively in all of their appearances, which were all made in the Commonwealth Games of ninety eight, where Steve Orr won his silver medal. <laughs> yes, and Brian says I'd be very interested if someone does a long form piece on this team, as there are some characters and backstories in there. Well, Brian, uh, let me take that one on notice. I'd like to do it. 28.01, Jeff, you've done really well here. Richard Jansmore, you talked about Brian Reynolds, uh, who was the North Hans opener, who Richard's dad, who uh, enjoyed watching uh, back when he was a younger man. Uh, Richard adds here, my dad ended up in tears listening uh, to the section on the 4am podcast, which is when uh, we recorded uh, that answer, uh, which set me off a bit too. Uh, his comment was that he was a lovely, lovely man who we all thought was the best thing since sliced bread. I hope that other people are listening to this so that he is remembered and appreciated. Thanks, Jeff and Adam. A lovely moment to share with my dad. And Rudy Edsel has confirmed that his $7.20 was indeed Andy Bickle taking 7 for 20 against England in the 03 World Cup. He says, as soon as Adam said that Rudy and I are the same age, I knew you were 100% on the money. A small point though, I am actually a year younger than you. I watched that World Cup with the sound off on a tiny black and white TV at the end of my bed at the start of my year 12, many nights with far too little sleep and cost me some grades, but totally worth it. And I love the fact that talking about Rudy and talking about the living end prompted a whole bunch of living end chat in the Discord channel uh, from Six Again and, and Josh who were enjoying playing that, uh, that uh, what did they say, uh, eponymous uh, debut album from 1999. Uh, I might do the same this afternoon, Jeff. Well, we don't need no one to tell us what to do. Oh, yes, we're on our own and there's nothing you can do. So we don't need no one like you to tell us what to do. Nothing better than that for teenagers. Uh, That was the final word, story time. That's the end of the show. Uh, We will be back with the weekly show where we look at the issues of the game or interview people or do the things we do in the middle of the week uh, next weekend story time more of this more of the tales from cricket's past if you want to get on the show patreon.com slash the final word send us in a nerd pledge and we'll get your number onto the list thanks to brick lane for supporting us and to woodstock cricket the final word is on the bad producer podcast network plenty of other shows to look up there it's edited by dave collins and it is hosted by Me, Jeff Lemon, and the other guy, Adam Collins. Uh, Thank you for your company across this show. We'll see you next time. Have a nice weekend.